Namaste. We are here with Dr. Kundan Singh, who is visiting us from the US. For our viewers, I'd like to read out his very illustrious bio. He is the co-doctoral faculty at the Hindu University of Florida. He is a senior fellow at Hindupedia, California. He is the vice president of the Cultural Integral Fellowship. He is the former core faculty at Sophia University, California. Adjunct faculty at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He has authored The Evolution of Integral Yoga, Sri Aurobindo, Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda. He has also contributed several chapters in edited books on issues of postmodern philosophy of science and Indian darshana systems. He has authored this book, Making Children Hindu-phobic, a critical review of McGraw-Hill's world history textbooks with Krishna Maheshwari. Krishna Maheshwari is an MBA from Harvard Business School, Masters and Bachelors in Computer Science from Cornell University. He is the founder and CEO of Hindupedia. Welcome, Dr. Singh. Thank you. To begin our discussion, uh, Please outline a brief history of the California textbook case which brought along the publication of this book and what was your role in the same? Sure. So before I begin to talk about my role, I would want to talk about the paradigm in which um, <clears throat> the framework of California schools is structured. So basically, the California legislature, it gives content standards mm -hmm. to California Department of Education. Okay. The California Department of Education um, constitutes what is known as Instructional Quality Design uh, Commission. Okay. Instructional Quality Commission creates a framework which it gives to publishers for the creation of various textbooks. Once these textbooks are ready, then the commission creates various subcommittees for the textbooks to be evaluated on certain standards. And once the committees have vetted uh, those textbooks, then they become available for adoption in various school districts. Right. So this is the process. and. Instructional Quality Commission basically meets, meets every 10 years for the evaluation and the re-evaluation re of framework in which it seeks representations from uh, professors, teachers, students, parents, community leaders, community activists and so on and so forth. Right. And based on those representations, if it finds that there are certain erroneous uh, aspects to the framework, then it removes those aspects and creates a new framework. Right. So this time, the framework in California uh, for uh, the school kids uh, was re-evaluated between years 2015 and 2017. And it was in this phase of uh, evaluation and re-evaluation that I was part of this process. Right. So let me tell you how actually I got involved in this. Okay. Uh, this was sometime in February or March of 2016. Mm -hmm. And 
there was one particular organization in the Bay Area uh, by the name of Hindu Education Foundation uh, which contacted me and uh, told me that bunch of professors who teach at various universities in California and the US who call themselves as South Asia scholars have uh, come together and petitioned IQC that India should be replaced with South Asia and Hinduism should be replaced with uh, religions of South Asia. Okay. And uh, it was quite evident to me that in this process they were basically erasing the identity of India and also Hinduism. Absolutely. And because I'm familiar with the colonial and the orientalist discourse which had been unleashed on India, um, you know, for about two, 200 years before India became independent, I also knew that this impulse had the colonialist connections. Okay. In the sense that the British ontologists, right from the very beginning, they have stated that Hinduism is nothing but a ragtag collocation of many different traditions. There is inconsistency within the tradition, there is incoherence, and it was basically the neo Vedantic movement, beginning with Swami Vivekananda, that actually got these traditions together, removed the inconsistencies and the contradictions that existed hmm. and created something which is known as Hinduism today. Okay. So I'm familiar with this discourse. I'm familiar with uh, uh, you know, what the Indologists have spoken about hmm. and I also am familiar with what is going on in mainstream academia hmm. with respect to uh, uh, you know, the, the creation of Hinduism, Neo-Vedanta movement and so on and so forth. Right. Right. So I could very clearly see the colonialist connection, you know, in terms of uh, the uh, substitution of uh, Hinduism with religions of South Asia. Right. However, in the petition uh, that I wrote uh, for IQC, I did not mention this, but I, um, I spoke about why India should not be replaced with South Asia. Okay. And in doing that, what I did was that I spoke about the mention of India as one geographical entity in Greek and Roman records. Okay. We have a long history of India having been represented as one single geographical unit by chroniclers and historians from across the world. Right. And because uh, people in the West are familiar with uh, Greek and Roman thinkers. I deliberately uh, situated and located my arguments around the Greek and Roman thinkers slash historians. Okay. Simultaneously what happened was that uh, Krishna Maheshwari from Hindupedia and uh, Vamsi Jaluri from 
another university in San Francisco, came together and created this petition called Scholars for People. Okay. Um, and I provided them, you know, the research that I was doing, which uh, actually went into the petition that I wrote for IQC. Okay. And uh, this petition was put on the web and signatures were, were sought. And about 27,000 signatures were raised by uh, people of Indian origin from across the world uh, saying that India should not be replaced with South Asia and religions of uh, India should not be replaced with Hinduism. And uh, IQC did take cognizance of the discomfort that was within the community and it decided against the replacement of South Asia and religions of, you know, the other whatever, whatever that right. term was at that point in right. time. So this was the beginning of my involvement and as I told you, I'm quite familiar with the colonialist and the orientalist discourse. So once this process was over, you know, um, the, the petitioning with regards to, uh, uh, you know, non-erasure of India and, South, um, of India and you know, and, and Hinduism, mm. I started taking a critical look at the framework which discusses India and Hinduism. Right. And I could very clearly see deeper Orientalist and colonial constructions. Um, at that point in time, Hindu Education Foundation and uh, um, Hindu American Foundation, they put together a coalition of scholars who wrote another petition to IQC, mm. pointing out uh, some more problems within the framework. But what I found interacting with many of the faculty as uh, we were putting together that petition, that there was a certain discomfort with respect to calling spade a spade and stating that, you know, there are explicit orientalist and racist connotations hmm. existing within the framework. And that for this or these reasons alone, we need to completely overhaul the framework. Right. So in my assessment, though the framework which eventually got released in 2017 was better than what was in existence 10 years ago, hmm. uh, it still has a lot of problems. I am not satisfied with the framework which is in existence today. Right. So once uh, the framework was finalized, um, I took a critical look at it again. Right. And what I found was that 80% of the framework was discussed along caste lines. 80%. Even after your recommendations even, have been even after even after the even after my recommendation even after the petition that uh, you know this coalition of scholars made to IQC 
uh, in spite of numerous petitions which uh, students of Indian American origin went to IQC um, and, 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 and mentioned uh, the, the impact which it has on their identity formation uh, in terms of the bullying that they experience from their peers and so on and so forth. Because of the text. Books. Because of the text. In fact, you know, Hindu American Foundation has done a study mm. and it has found that the, the narrative which is fed to the Indian American children in the United States on India and Hinduism impacts their, identif uh, their identity formation to such an extent that they dissociate themselves from Hinduism and heritage of their ancestors. They are shamed by it? Yes, very, you know, very quickly in their life. And it, it sort of creates intergenerational struggle, right. you know, within families. Of course. And ultimately what it does is that it creates intra-psychic struggles within them. Okay. And for people who are familiar with psychology, hmm. A proper identity found formation is extremely important for its transcendence if you look at it from a psycho-spiritual psycho standpoint. It is only the ego which has been properly formed which can actually be transcended. Ego which has not been formed properly will not only not get transcended hmm. But it also will have a baggage of what we call shadows. Right. And there this, and you know. An alienation, in, of yes, course. In, in the entire lifetime, across the developmental span, there, you know, there is this struggle which is, which is going on within the individuals. So the impact is very, very strong. And, uh, and this has, you know, this has been documented by the Hindu American Foundation. Right. So it's not only, you know, what I as an individual did in this, but, but despite the collective effort which was put in this direction hmm. by the Indian American community, that the shift did not happen to the extent that it should have happened. Right. And uh, I was so disgusted by that process, as I told you, that when I looked at the framework, Mm. I found that 80% of the framework on India and Hinduism was uh, revolving around caste. And the moment we talk about caste, it basically means hierarchy and oppression. Absolutely. So the equation that emerges, you know, uh, in the textbooks is Hinduism is equal to caste, caste, is equal to hierarchy, is equal to oppression. This is what you actually get. And this equation gets explicitly and implicitly taught in the, in the textbooks. And this is basically what I pointed out. And as I was pointing out, you know, this essentialization of uh, Hinduism. Uh, Hinduism along the caste lines, I also pointed out, you know, how the education codes which have been given to the state of California by U.S. Constitution, hmm. 
who are getting violated. Right. So, you know, the two letters that I have spoken about, you know, they are mm. actually part of uh, this book. Uh, they are uh, they are in the the appendices section, you know. Mm. So the first one basically talks about um, uh, you know existence of India um, as a geographical entity and Greek and uh, Roman records, and the second one is basically talking about you know this, the essentialization of Hinduism along caste lines yeah. and the violation of uh, the California. various California uh, education codes. codes. Education codes. Yeah. Right. That uh, you know uh, that happen once you have this kind of a narrative. True. Dr. Singh, uh, as I read this book, I found that it's a very balanced offering of pure research as well as very simple explanations. So right. who did you have in mind as your audience when you wrote this book? So, you know, I would, I would want to make it very clear that this book is semi-academic uh, in orientation. Right. It is not purely ac academic and there is a reason behind this. Hmm. Um, you know, this has specifically been written to raise awareness amongst the Indian American uh, parents okay. and Hindus across the world to become aware of the problems that exist in in in, in framework and subsequently in uh, uh, you know. In fact, in, the in all the texts that we read, right, we can read through this lens. That's so, right. Uh, you know, see the thing is that when parents read what is being taught to their children, they are aware of the problems, but they do not know the nature of the problem. Okay. They do not know the extent of the problem. Right. And so, um, you know, there is a, a certain kind of emotional dis-ease within them, but they are not able to intellectually articulate what, is exactly what the problems are. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So what I'm doing in this book is that you know I'm 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 specifically, or rather I should say, uh, Krishna and I, you know, we are specifically uh, pointing out that uh, you know the 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 contents have colonialist and orientalist connections, and at the same time they violate the sacrosanct codes. education codes. Okay. So the next time that they go to uh, you know IQC or any such organization uh, institution organization anywhere within the United States they are able to talk about these problems in very very clear ways right so in a certain sense you know this has been written to create a movement amongst the people so that the change can happen absolutely and it is it's semi-academic because you know um, uh, we wanted whatever we are saying to be based in evidence and literature which is which is uh, um, already in existence in mainstream academia right so uh, dr singh uh, you analyzed the mcgraw hill textbooks that's right so can you tell us how do they treat the aryan invasion theory which has been debunked more number of times than I care to mention, but they still kind of hold on to these ideas. Right, right. So how do they do it and why? So before I come to this question, you know, um, I want to add one more thing. You know, I want to add uh, how 
uh, Krishna and I came to writing uh, this book actually. Okay. So I was telling you, you know, um, the problems that I found in the framework. And this was perhaps, you know, uh, May or June of uh, 2017. Uh, I, I would say May. Hmm. Uh, my father uh, suddenly fell ill and I had to come to India and, uh, you know, I was taking care of him for, uh, for the next five, six months. So I, I was not able to get involved in this process as much as I would have wanted. So in the, in the meantime, what happened was that Krishna, with some other members of, Hind of Hindupedia and people of uh, the other two organizations that I have mentioned, Hindu American Foundation and Hindu Education Foundation, uh, got together and they started writing critiques of the books uh, created by publishers from the framework that had been adopted by the Instructional Quality Commission. Right. And Krishna's critique on uh, the draft books of HMH was very well done. And what happened in the process was that the draft books of HMH What is HMH, Dr. Is, Singh? Um, Harcourt, Mifflin, um, I'm not remembering, you know, what this the other... This is a publishing H, house? Yes, this is, this is a very famous publishing house, actually. Right. So, uh, you know, I usually uh, mention the abbreviation, so I don't remember the full form. No, right. Um, but we can look it up, um, you know, what it stands for. Mm -hmm. but definitely Harcourt Mufflin. Right. Um, you know, in terms of the, in, ter in terms of H and M, M hmm. in HMH. Hmm. So, so what happened was that, uh, you know, the two draft textbooks of HMH were rejected. Okay. And the letter that Krishna Maheshwari from Hindupedia had written to uh, IQC hmm. was cited for 50 citations or 50 reasons for the rejection of HMH. HMH. And you can say that it was for the first time that the Indian American community or the Hindu American community in the United States had made some dent in the process. Okay. Because this is huge. Uh, the stocks of HMH took a massive hit. Hmm. And this basically sent shudders, you know, across the, uh, the, the, the publishing world. Absolutely. So now what has happened is that the publishers have become much more open to working with people who are pointing out problems in their textbooks. Right. So that's one part of the story, you know, which I did not narrate earlier. Hmm. Now let me come to your question. Um, you know, we all know that at best the Aryan invasion migration theory has been completely debunked. Sure. At worst, it is controversial. Hmm. Right? Right. Numerous people, numerous scholars have done extensive work uh, in this area. Hmm. Many archaeologists, you know, have spent 
25, 30 years uh, in this field and they have not found one single piece of evidence which actually justifies or substantiates either the invasion of the Aryans or the migration, the migration of the Aryans, sure. right? Mm. And these papers have been published in various international fora. And despite that, what you find is that the textbooks and uh, McGraw-Hill's textbooks um, are included in mm. that list. They still talk about the Aryans. Yes. If they are not talking about the invasion of the Aryans, they are talking about the migration of the Aryans. Mm. And in my assessment, the migration of Aryans is basically a politically correct way of saying that the Aryans invaded mm. the Indian subcontinent at one point in time. True. The, the logical thing is that if you have not found any piece of evidence, you know, in terms of the coming of the Aryans, mm. then you would say that, you know, that this, this theory is bogus. But the unfortunate part is that this this theory, the Aryan invasion theory, it has morphed itself hmm. and it has become politically correct in the sense that, you know, I, I mean, we, we all know that the term Aryan is racist in origin, you know, Absolutely. the German Indologists, they, uh, they, they, they sort of, uh, you know, locked on to this term hmm. and uh, because of their own political reasons in the 19th century, hmm. you know, this, they created this idea of pure Aryan race, right. uh, which was appropriated, you know, by the Nazis. Hmm. And we all know the, the Holocaust, that. you know, uh, that, uh, uh, that happened, hmm. you know, through the appropriation of this term. True. So we all know that the term Aryan is extremely racist in origin, Absolutely. right? And, uh, and because, you know, um, the race theories um, or uh, the, the discourse on race has completely debunked this fact hmm. that there is nothing scientific about race. True. In current times, hmm. nobody will use Aryans as a race, hmm. right? And that's what's happening in the textbooks also. Right. But... You know, instead of saying that this was a racist theory, let's be done with it. The term that uh, these textbook writers are using is people with Indo-European languages. And what does you this see my point? Yes. So this is you know this is this is this is basically to delude. Hmm. This is a sleight of hand, basically. Absolutely. You know? Because it means more or less the same thing. It basically means the same thing. Hmm. Right? Hmm. And despite this lack of evidence. Hmm. So, it is deeply problematic in the sense that despite the fact that there has been so much research which has been generated controverting, you know, the Aryan invasion theory or the Aryan migration theory. Hmm. Uh, that this theory still continues, mm. right? Yes. Or let's say, for instance, you know, I'm not saying that uh, they should completely debunk this theory. 
you know. Okay. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is that even if they say that there are two equally powerful contentions in academia at this point in time, you know. Create one, that, but yes, doubt. Yes. In the reader's one, mind. Yes. Or saying that so that you know, so that the Good teacher, uh, the, the the teacher as well as the student investigates enough. for himself or herself hmm. and finds out, you know, what that reality is. True. But despite so much of generation of evidence against this theory, hmm. this theory is still being taught as veritable truth, hmm. and this is extremely problematic. You True. know, because we know that there are no. Archeolo uh, you know, then there's no archaeological evidence. Yeah. Uh, the in terms of linguistic evidence, you know, there are scholars from India, uh, for instance, Srikant Telagiri, yeah. you know, who has uh, very clearly shown that you know the migration, in fact, could have happened from, from India. India. You know, I'm not interested. I'll, I'll make it very clear to you True. that I am not interested in out of India thesis at this point in time. Right. You know. All that I'm saying is that if evidence has been not found, hmm. you know, for the coming of the Aryans, uh, it should not be taught as such. Hmm. And the third category is, you know, is genetic research. And there also, uh, you know, there's a lot of controversy. True. Uh, there's, you know, there's one uh, set of scholars who are clearly saying that, you know, that there's no genetic evidence. There's another set, you know, which is, which is saying that there are, uh, you know some pieces of evidence, hmm. but what has happened is that even in this field, the clarity has not emerged. Right. And given these controversies, you know, uh, this racist theory, which was actually put in place during the colonial times, hmm. should not be taught as such. Right. This is, you know, this is what my uh, reasonable and reasoned understanding is. Absolutely, and, uh, and 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 I feel that uh, you know it should it should certainly get represented um, in the textbooks. I'm, I mentioned this in our book, uh, Making Children Hindophobic, mm -hmm. and I have written you know a couple of uh, academic papers also on this particular issue, and uh, <coughs> they are in the process of becoming uh, you know chapters in edited books. Mm -hmm. So once those chapters become available, I'll certainly make them available for people to read. Right. Uh, Dr. Singh, you have mentioned in your book that the books view Hinduism as a ragtag coalition of many different religions. What does this mean to you and what does this mean when the McGraw-Hill books say it in right. the texts? So, you know, when you ask me this question, I want you uh, to go through something which British Indologist James Mill wrote way back in 1817 mm. and I have uh, you know emphasized this over and over again that many of uh, the uh, pieces of discourse that you find on India and Hinduism today mm. um, are directly connected with what was written by British Indologists. Right. So, um, you know, taking a leaf out of uh, that assertion, mm. I would I would want to read to you uh, something you know which um, James Mill has written about Hinduism. Right. And and you as well as uh, 
you know, the people uh, listening to this interview will be able to um, join the dots together and they will be able to see the connections themselves. So, in History of British India, Volume 1, uh, between pages 385 and 387, James Mill writes, No people, how rude and ignorant soever, who have so far advanced as to leave us memorials of their thoughts in writing, have ever drawn a more gross and disgusting picture of the universe than what is presented in the writings of the Hindus. In the conception of it, no coherence, wisdom or beauty ever appears. All is disorder, caprice, passions, contest, potence, prodigies, violence and deformity. It is perfectly evident that the Hindus never contemplated the universe as a connected and perfect system governed by general laws and directed to benevolent ends. And it follows as a, as a necessary consequence that their religion is no other than primary worship which is addressed to the designing and invisible beings who preside over powers of nature according to their own arbitrary will and act for some private and selfish gratification. The elevated language which this species of worship finally assumes is only the refinement which flattery founded upon a base apprehension of divine character in grafts upon a mean superstition. Okay. Before I continue, you know, I want to read to you another one. This mm. is on page 334. Mm. It is all vagueness and darkness, mm. incoherence, inconsistency and confusion. Okay. It is one of the most extravagant of all specimens of discourse without ideas. The fearless propensity of a rude mind to guess where it does not know never exhibited itself in more fantastic and sensible forms. So do you see the connection? I see a lot of... You know, do you see where, <laughs> where, this, where this discourse is coming from? Yes. And this is, this is part of our larger project, you know, I'm working on another book hmm. which basically looks at uh, the, the discourse of James Mill and uh, I am, uh, you know, going to connect uh, very clearly what we experience in the textbooks today hmm. with what James Mill unfolded on okay. Hinduism in India you know, about 200 years ago. Okay. So let me, let me talk a little bit about James Mill. You right. know, why, why does this book Absolutely. or this gentleman become important? Hmm. Uh, History of British India in three volumes hmm. was published in 1817. Okay. 
and uh, this was after nine years of research that James Mill had put in. Okay. And for the entire period, James Mill was financially supported hmm. by East India Company. Okay. So East India Company was invested in the creation of this Discourse. textbook. Right. You know. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> and in the first volume itself, hmm. he has written seven chapters on the Hindus. And, and in, in these seven chapters, you will be hard-pressed to find one positive representation of and on Hindus. And this is after how many years of living in India, Dr. Singh? He never came to India. James Mill never came to India. And he wrote this book? He, yes, and he wrote History of British India. Okay. Yeah. And, and he explains in the preface itself, you know, why it is not necessary to visit for, India. for a historian to visit India in order to write a book on India, a book or, or you know, a book on India or its history. Now, this book became the standard textbook for East India Company as it was training its officers who were serving in India. Hmm. Later, on this material, uh, Cambridge and Oxford built on their narratives. Okay. And as time progressed, you know, this narrative became part of the various institutions and universities uh, that the Britishers created here in India. So basically and their history is based on anecdotal fallacy. They heard some instances from somewhere, quoted these instances into their books and made them the truth. No, not only that. I mean, you know, I, mean, I would say that uh, you're being very generous mm. in assessing James Mill. Mm. The agenda was very clear. Mm. The agenda was to show, you know, how uncivilized, brute, savage the Hindus and Indians were, mm. you know, so that the white man's burden of civilizing India could, could be actually justified. be justified. Absolutely. You know, that was the agenda and that agenda was extremely explicit. Hmm. Post-colonial studies, you know, um, of which, uh, you know, Saeed's Orientalism is an integral part, hmm. you know, um, can do such kind of analysis, which, but it is unfortunate, you know, that uh, the post-colonial Hindu study, you know, post-colonial studies has, hasn't really evaluated the material, you know, which James Mill left uh, you know, on Hindus and India. Okay. So, because this narrative, you know, which was put in place by um, by James Mill, hmm. became part of the normal and regular narrative, that it forms uh, still continue hmm. in mainstream discourse. Hmm. What has happened is that this very noxious discourse has become politically correct. That is the only thing that has happened. It's become acceptable now. It has become acceptable. Hmm. Right? Right. And, uh, and, and, and because the critical analysis or deconstruction of this discourse and its continued eff effects or influence on current narrative hasn't happened. It remains correct. That, that the narrative continues. So the, the, the idea 
that I have is that we need to critically examine and deconstruct this discourse and see its influence on the materials which are being taught in schools hmm. and universities hmm. so that the, you know so that people worldwide can actually become aware of what is actually happening you know this is this is treacherous it is this is this is treacherous you know what is happening and it is it's very very unfortunate that uh, you know uh, the uh, the mainstream academia which lauds itself uh, for uh, its liberalness you know does not look at the political incorrectness of this discourse and in fact you know uh, in conscious and unconscious ways it replicates that discourse dr singh this brings me to think that a self professed academia from the us who pride themselves on extensive research and going deep into any field have missed this kind of discourse and they continue to replicate it without informing themselves of the fact that this is rather uh, this is an antithesis to hinduism what i heard from you just now is rather a flagrant interpretation of hinduism which is absolutely incorrect and false how has this academia overlooked the fact of this see the west for a very long period of time has engaged in othering when the hegemony of west was uncontested mm. uh over non west mm. there were many different sections you know of people that they could other right they could other native americans you know they could other africans they could other muslims mm. you know they could other hindus and indians mm. they could other you know chinese people mm. and so on and so forth right but what has happened now is that it has become absolutely politically incorrect to other either the native americans mm. or the blacks mm. or the hispanics mm. or the muslims mm. or the chinese people but because a certain self reflexivity or you know of western cosmology hasn't happened hmm. that the west hasn't hasn't rid itself hmm. of its own pr- propensity hmm. to other and project its own shadows hmm. onto that created other okay so at this point in time which is very unfortunate hmm. you know hindus are the politically correct category on which all the junk can be unloaded okay so you we see remain, my point we remain the whipping boys yes okay so you know it's like so in academia hmm. anybody can say anything about the hindus you hmm. know hmm. <laughs> any contestation you know of whatever has has been said on the hindus or or you know or or or, or what is being said on the hindus gets very uh, easily conflated you know with right with fascism yes. you know with murder of gandhi 
you know, Nazism and yes. so on and so forth. Yes. This is basically because of this, this process of creating the other and projecting one's own shadows onto the other. So, I think the academia also needs to reflect deeply. Absolutely. Absolutely. Upon themselves. Self-reflexivity self is extremely important, you know, hmm. for psycho-spiritual growth. This is what, you know, the classical Indian tradition, uh, you know, has continually emphasized. Hmm. Hinduism has emphasized this, Buddhism has emphasized this, Jainism has emphasized this. Right. You know, it is extremely important to critically self-reflect. Uh, self Reflect on yourself, you know, reflect on the categories that you have built for yourself. Yes. You know, and once you critically examine those categories that you have, been, uh, that you have built for, for yourself, then you gain the propensity to transcend. Those. And that can never happen, you know, until unless your gauge turns inwards, you start looking within. And it's only through looking within that, uh, that, that, that you transcend and transform. True. And my, my thesis is that what is true psychologically is also true sociologically. Okay. So in order for the West, you know, to get rid of this propensity hmm. to other, hmm. at some point in time, it will need to bring self-reflexivity on a very wide scale. That's true. Within academia if it really wants to transform the discourse and transform uh, its tendencies to other hmm. and project shadows onto the other. Right. Uh, Dr. Singh, you have mentioned in your book about the fault lines that this, uh, the McGraw-Hill textbooks create between Buddhism and Hinduism. How do they do it and why is it that they keep on doing it? Right. So I was telling you about uh, James Mill, hmm. you know, and I also mentioned that it would be very difficult for anyone to basically find one positive representation, you know, of, on the Hindus, hmm. and that his ideas very ex were very explicit hmm. to show Hindus and Hinduism in a very very poor light, hmm. you know, so that uh, you know the uh, the colonial control of uh, East India Company could continue or. Uh, the missionaries could come and and convert right right um, and and as he was doing this uh, what he did was that he made hinduism a tradition or religion which is extremely hierarchical and oppressive right yes so when uh, when when buddhism is spoken about you know, hmm. uh, the textbook is not really talking about in great detail or as a central focus that it was basically because of the existential crisis that Buddha underwent right. by seeing a diseased person, uh, you know, an old person, a dead person hmm. and a monk hmm. on whose face there was no trace of suffering. Hmm. that he became inclined to pursue truth for the sake of truth. Right. Right. Instead of 
highlighting this in a very very significant way hmm. and, uh, and 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 putting focus um, what the text begins to describe is that buddha was extremely dissatisfied hmm. with the caste uh, nature of hinduism or its rituals involving animal sacrifices hmm. now in my understanding this is a this is a huge uh, distortion of truth absolutely because if you look at you know the four ashramas hmm. what is it that you find towards the end of uh, one's life you know in the in the in the in the final chapter of one's life <laughs> one is expected you know to take sannyas absolutely and basically find the truth for himself and herself and i'm deliberately using herself you know because uh, the uh, the institution of sanyas was open to women, women hermits as well True. you know we get that evidence very very clearly in arthashastra yes so so what does that mean and and, and at the same time hmm. you know if one got inspired to pursue the spiritual truth hmm. even before he or she reached the final stage of uh, his or her ashrama life hmm. uh, he or she could basically exit the four, the fourfold order hmm. by providing for his or her family you know okay. hmm. it was it was extremely important that the individual provided for his or her family they fulfilled that part of the ashram right. before transcending before yeah before exiting the fourfold order right you know hmm. so the idea of pursuing the truth for the sake of truth hmm. and finding truth uh, in one's experience or existence was something and to a large extent i think is still very very common within the hindu hindu society hmm. and when i look at what uh, siddharth gautama or buddha did hmm. was that he followed something which was enshrined within the society hmm. you know he got inspired to pursue truth for the sake of truth and he exited the fourfold order hmm. right hmm. where where is this conflict you know with hinduism true uh, coming about hmm. this conflict you know is actually fabricated Hmm. it's created yes and of course you know i mean uh, in 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 today's narrative despite the fact that we have overwhelming evidence of the fact that it was invaders you know from the from the middle east who destroyed the monasteries hmm. and the universities yes in india uh, you still have the narrative that it was basically the brahmins who drove the buddhist away from india and mm. where does that narrative come, come from? from you know you will be able to find find its source in james mill again and uh, i'll give you a quote this is this is on page uh, uh, you know uh, 360 but though buddha is by the hindus regarded as a manifestation of the divine being the sect of the buddhists are regarded as heretical and are persecuted by the brahmins it is conjecture conjectured that at one point at one time a great number of them had been compelled to fly 
from the country and spread their tenets in various directions. The religion of the Buddha is now found to prevail over the greater part of the East in Ceylon, in farther peninsula, in Tibet, in China and even as far as Japan. So, the, so you know, so what is commonly accepted today that, uh, you know, the, 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 the Buddhists were, uh, were persecuted, persecuted and, uh, and, 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 you know, and banished from India. And that is why uh, they travel to these other countries. Right. Right. So what was conjecture at one point in time has become the, the mainstream narrative today. And again, you know, you find uh, the genesis of that narrative in the yeah. writings of James Mill. And this is the kind of critical reflection that I am talking about. This is, this is something that we really need to do. Hmm, that's true. In a similar manner, Dr. Singh, uh, you've also mentioned that the books uh, target Indian polity and governance as being rather petty and rather limited in their scope and imagination as to not being able to do much good to the society. And that's why they had to take in inferences from other civilizations. How does this happen in the books and what is the counter-argument to this? You know, there's, there's no counter-argument actually, you know, to tell you very honestly. Hmm. Um, it's, it's just the exploration, you know, of what was in existence in the ancient times by looking at the tenets that are uh, there in Dharmashastras, hmm. you know, and to a smaller extent in Arthashastra hmm. with regards to governance, right. you know, and comparing those with what is the dominant and accepted narrative in today's academia. Hmm. And what you find is that there's a, there's a huge divergence. I won't go into the details. Hmm. But the very fact that the Hindus created a hierarchical form of, ex, of uh, governance hmm. in which oppression was the norm is again something you know which has been built by Mill and regurgitated by people who came later, later or who took inspiration from James Mill. Hmm. And uh, you know, in fact, if you can quote, I will be just yes, yes. I will. I'll definitely. I, I'll definitely quote you that. Uh, on page 202 of uh, History of British India, James Mill writes, Among the Hindus, according to the Asiatic model, the government was monarchical and with the usual exception of religion and its ministers, absolute. Hmm. So, that, that the Hindus created an absolutist form of, gov of governance and government hmm. is something again, you know, which he talks about. And... Uh, this this has become the established trope in mainstream academia today. So, Dr. Singh, what are your long-term plans regarding this work that you have begun and you have been largely successful in your efforts as well? What do you foresee? So, you know, as I mentioned to you in our conversation, I'm working on a book, you know, which is... Um, making very, very explicit, you know, the, the connections that you, that you find uh, in the textbooks of uh, school-going ch children in the United States uh, with uh, the 
writings of James Mill. Okay. So that's, you know, that's, that's project number one. And uh, during the course of conversation, I also told you that despite the existence of post-colonial studies, you mm. know, it, it doesn't seem that the mainstream uh, scholars, you know, who are working within the field of post-colonial studies have actually taken cognizance of what uh, James Mill wrote uh, on the Hindus. Mm. So um, when I joined the Hindu University of, Amer of America, or in fact, you know, as I was joining the Hindu University of America, uh, my explicit plea, you know, to the uh, interim president was that I would create um, a stream of thought mm. uh, titled Postcolonial Hindu Studies. Okay. And in this particular category, you know, or in this particular concentration, we are going to look at uh, you know various kinds of literature um, that are colonial and orientalist hmm. in uh, in orientation. Right. So uh, it's a two-pronged process, if you hmm. will. Uh, the first one involves deconstruction. Hmm. You know, uh, which which basically is uh, looking critically at the narrative uh, which is in existence in mainstream hmm. today. Right. And reconstruction. And by reconstruction, I mean, you know, the creation of uh, uh, the worldview or the ideas with which the Hindus related and lived when the civilization was thriving. Okay. Our original roadmap and blueprint. Beg your pardon. Our I, that's original right. That's roadmap right. That's and right. Blueprint. That's right. You know, because every civilization, you know, has a cosmology. Hmm. The West has a cosmology. Right. You know, uh, the Indians have a cosmology. Which James Mill denounced. In very very strong absolutely words. and and you know and 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 and, and by that I, I i mean to say that there's epistemology mm. uh, there's methodology mm. for knowledge pursuit right you know so when you look at the west mm. what you find is that mind is their ultimate limit in terms of knowledge pursuit true right so basically, you know, they either involve their mind or their senses or an interaction of both in the creation of knowledge, right? True. When they're specifically focused on senses, hmm. right? And when the, uh, they explore the world using their senses, hmm. then what you have is this philosophy by the name positivism. Hmm. When they re use their reason and mind, Hmm. And logic, hmm. you know, it, it gives birth to rationalism, hmm. right? So, you have, uh, you have these faculties which are dominantly operative uh, within the Western world, yes. you know, in terms of knowledge pursuit. Hmm. What do you find, you know, in, in, in the classical Indian cosmology? Hmm. You know, um, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism... Mm. They might differ 
in terms of their enunciation with respect to ultimate reality. Yes. Right? But they all will say that truth can only be discovered by transcending senses and mind. Mind, yes. So not only, you know, you are required to transcend your senses, but also your mind. And there are elaborate ways, you know, which you find in, uh, in our darshanas uh, that speak uh, in detail, uh, you know, with, with regards to the process involving the transcendence of mind. Absolutely. Right? Yes. And the transcendence of mind and senses, they lead to experiencing a certain kind of reality. Yes. And that reality, you know, has been held as truth for us. And it is a, it is a legitimate way of accessing reality and truth. Yes. The West has made that illegitimate. Hmm. Do we need to buy into that? Is it necessary that we internalize this discourse and say that whatever our ancestors have done is nothing but stark superstition? We can take a different uh, viewpoint. Yes. Which is that, you know, truth can be accessed in many different ways. Yes. You know, the West has taken certain ways for accessing the truth. You know, the Indians since antiquity have taken a very different way uh, of accessing truth. You know, <clears throat> none of none of these yogis are saying that you have to take, uh, you know, their their the, 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 the words as truth. You have to. You can experience it for yourself. Exactly. In fact, they they make it very clear yes. that you have to experience this truth yourself. True. You know. In fact, you know, if you, uh, if, you, uh, if you access it through your mind or through literature, hmm. you'll get lost. That is what they're saying. True. Ultimately, I mean, you know, what is it that you're supposed to be doing? You need to take these words as markers on the path to accessing truth for yourself. True. Right? True. And what was experienced what was revealed became the font for our various quote-unquote secular activities. Right? True. That is true. We need to explore that. We need to find out that core. We need to figure that out. And we need to see, you know, how that core translated, you know, into our sociology, you know, into our mathematics, into our science, into our dance, into our drama, True. and so on and so forth. Our entire knowledge systems. Our entire knowledge system. So yeah. it's, it's a big project, you know. We are it working is. on that. It is. And it is for this reason that a bunch of us have come together at the Hindu University of America. We are not only revitalizing you know the university uh, we are creating um, streams concentrations um, which are very 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 different from you know what what has happened in academia in the past 
and our conviction is that this will have lasting impact on India, Indian civilization and, uh, and Indian Americans in the United States. On these very lines, Dr. Singh, I would like your comment on one comment that uh, Modi ji made, a statement that he made in the media. He said, ये बहुत दुर्भाग्यपूर्ण रहा है कि अंग्रेजी शासन के दौरान और स्वतंत्रता के बाद भी देश का जो इतिहास लिखा गया उसमें इतिहास के कुछ अहम पक्षों को नजरअंदाज कर दिया गया वॉट इज योर ओपिनियन आई वुड से दैट मोदी जी इज बींग वेरी पोलाइट विद दिस स्टेटमेंट नॉट ओनली थिंग्स यू नो दैट है but my research of the last 20 25 years suggests that our history has been badly distorted and mind you viewers you know i'm not a street fighter you know when i'm saying this i'm i'm an academic i've spent my life you know with books researching ideas and i say this based on the sadhana or the hard work that i have put in in the past that history indian history really requires a revision it requires a revision because we are regurgitating the colonial history the colonial history still continues is just that it is being fed to us in politically correct and sanitized ways and if you do not trust me please look into what has been written on us and about us during the colonial period and you will be able to find the truth for yourself this has been the indian way find the truth for yourself i am telling you the conclusions that i have drawn based on the years of hard work that i have put in but i am not saying that you take my word for it what i am saying is that if you will look at the literature which was written on us during the colonial period you perhaps will be able to see the truth of my contentions or evaluate the veracity of my contentions thank you dr singh i think you have contributed immensely to awakening indians to india through your works through your books and through this interview we thank you for being with us thank you namaste namaste